I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After the apocalypse, a pandemic survival story, season four, episode 15, Clues. The old man stood in the shadow of the cabin doorway, watching the summer rain drip, drip, drip from the overhanging pine boughs. A dark, wet cloud sat over the island, pregnant with moisture. It seemed to grasp and squeeze everything, as if the whole lake was locked tightly in a gray tomb. The water of the lake beaded up in a thousand ripples as the rain fell. There was no wind. The air hung heavy with the wet smell of moss and decomposing pine needles. It felt oppressive. He squinted at the sky, its darkness echoing his own thoughts. The broad trunk of a mature evergreen stood within reach. Dark moss grew in the crotch of the branch. He reached out to tear a piece off and inspected it in the half-light of the drizzle. The strip was slick and beaded with water and smelled of wet, dark forest knolls. The moss stems were like tiny trees with reddish-brown crowns at the tips. He thought about the symmetry of nature, the fractal essence revealed every time you changed the magnification of the observer. The shapes were always consistent— there was some universal organizing principle amidst the chaos. Leaves and veins and river valleys all formed the same fractal landscape on scales that ranged from microscopic to continental. There should be some of that same sense or pattern with the virus. Sure, it was new. But nothing in nature is truly new. Everything follows a universal pattern and shape. There should be clues. He just had to figure it out. But right now, he was in the dark. He heard the muffled newborn baby cry of the child inside the cabin, a small sound through the muffling drizzle, like an exotic baby bird crying in the night. In this new world, what were those cries? Cries of pain, of hunger, of fear. Would they do nothing 
but attract the preying eyes of the metaphorical jackals and vultures. The squalling of the child he had come to see brought him back to the here and now, to his mission, to find a cure. He had examined the child and the young woman, Brittany. The little girl was healthy. She had no symptoms of the disease. Brittany confirmed having the virus when it first hit, like everyone else. But the child, the child had been healthy from the start. It was an enigma, a healthy, perfect little girl. Like the plague had never happened. Brittany appeared to be undernourished and anemic, and the baby was a little small, but all that made sense given the environmental influences of the last nine months. But even if she had passed perfect levels of immunity to the child, it still should have some sort of reaction to the virus, a fever, discharge, cough, or colic, Something. It was like this damn disease showed up and then went away again, like a thief in the night, not leaving him any clues, like someone had thrown a switch on, then off. Why? What could it mean? Why would it hit everywhere, all at once, and then not manifest in this new host? didn't make sense. He searched his mind for a precedent. Were there other diseases that had complete prenatal transfer of immunity from a mother to a child? He knew that there was transplacental transfer of antibodies in the third trimester, and then again with the mother's milk, but he couldn't recall it being perfect. Did the baby have immunity or had it just not been exposed yet. What was different in this situation than in past pandemics? What had always fueled plagues in the past were the conditions. Cholera exploded because its life cycle used the common water sources in the cities where humans were crammed together and drinking the same water contaminated with human wastes. That plague thrived because humans extracted water from the same aquifer that the open sewers drained into. It only subsided when the lords famously removed the handles from the pumps in the poor sections of London. But what could the possible condition be for this new plague? It didn't seem to care about any specific conditions. He knew many plagues jumped from non-human hosts through mutation. Bird and swine and bovine flus mutated into human hosts because of people living in close quarters with their potential dinners. It was the environmental conditions that made fertile ground for novel pathogens to make the jump to humans and thrive. 
but there was no obvious correlation for this plague. Human communities far from agricultural areas fell ill at the same time as the farmers and meat merchants. No, it had to be something else. What was unique about this one? The old man searched his brain for any historical reference that might shed light on this new plague. What about the granddaddy of them all? The old man smiled. Our old friend, Yersinia Pestis, the great medieval plague, the Black Death, bubonic and then pneumonic plague, that was more like this current nemesis. Good old Yersinia pestis was, of course, not a virus. It was a particularly vigorous bacterium. And evolutionarily, it was one smart or lucky disease. To become as deadly as it was to the human race, why pestis went through multiple evolutionary leaps— through this series of fortunate mutations, it killed a third of medieval Europe. Yersinia pestis brought down empires. Why had it been so successful? Could this new plague be following the Why Pestis playbook? The old man thought about the known history first. Why pestis jumped from rodents in the deserts of the Middle East to the common rat, and then, through evolutionary dynamics, why pestis made the jump to humans. It did so using a vector, not water like cholera. No, why pestis enlisted the talents of the humble flea, in this insidious adaptation, why pestis killed the rat, but not the fleas. Instead, it blocked the fleas' digestive tract, making them ravenously hungry, but unable to feed. When the rat died, the unnaturally hungry fleas would seek their next meal, and when they found it, why pestis had its next host— that same blocked digestive tract would regurgitate Y. pestis into the bite. A brilliant adaptation. Did this new plague have a vector like the flea? No, he didn't see any evidence of that. If it was insect-borne, it would have spread more slowly out from the source and impacted the warmer climates first. That's not what happened. This plague just appeared one day. It had to be something else. What else about why pestis made it so successful? One final adaptation was bubonic plague. It collected into the host's lymph nodes, and in a wonderfully nuanced adaptation, why pestis waited. It waited in the lymph node and multiplied. It waited until the host's temperature rose to a certain level, and then it attacked, forming the swellings called bubos, from whence it got its moniker. The more the old man thought about it, 
the more he had respect for Y. Pestis. It was the Swiss army knife of plagues. But this new one was different. It wasn't a bacteria. It came on everywhere all at once. There was no obvious vector. Why Pestis had evolved to use body temperature as a trigger in its attack. This new plague had been triggered by something. But what? There were two things that he needed to figure out. How was the virus transmitted? Was there a vector? Was it air or moisture borne? But more importantly, what was the trigger? Maybe it was transmitted over time, innocuously. Maybe they had it all along, and it wasn't until the triggering event that the virus attacked. The old man's brows furrowed into the dark, dripping weather. What was he missing? He rolled a strip of moss in his fingers and threw it at the tree. Something moved. A large insect the size of his thumb shifted on the tree's bark. It was black with bright red pinhead eyes and sturdy translucent wings. A cicada. A seventeen-year cicada. These were the bugs that made the local news every once in a while. They came out in broods. Some slept in their underground larval stage for 17 years and emerged all at once to breed and die. A great periodic explosion of bug sex and annoyance. Why 17 years? He searched his memory for the article. Something about overwhelming predators or some other positively correlated evolutionary tick. He watched the ugly bub crab sideways like some prehistoric monster in a stop-motion Harryhausen movie. Just then the sun came through a rift in the dark gray cloud bank and highlighted the tree and its bug. The old man smiled. A thought occurred to him. He had an insight. Maybe, like why Pestis, this new plague had a trigger, and maybe that trigger was like these cicada, emerging periodically, not based on body temperature, but based on an unknown timing that was somehow closely entangled across the infections. But... How would a virus pull that off? Something like a DNA clock? Like those experimental DNA-based computers he'd read about in science articles. After all, that's all DNA really was. Chemical memory storage. And if there was storage, couldn't there be a system clock? He had a lead. He needed to run some tests and isolate this virus. If he could isolate it, prove that it already resided in everyone, even in this newborn, then he could work on figuring out how it was triggered. But if this theory was correct, then every newborn would be a ticking time bomb, and at some unknown point, 
the virus could turn back on and wipe new generations out. They would be living on borrowed time. He needed to get the baby back to the campus to continue his research. With the passing of the wind, a cold front moved through, a gentle breeze fresh in the air, bringing with it the fresh spring smell of the pine forest and lake water lapping up on the rocky shale beach. The sunshine danced in sparkling orbs of rainwater on the pine needles. He heard Brittany cooing baby talk. He had to talk to her and get her to come back with them. It was critical now. The old man re-entered the cabin. Brittany was in a well-worn, solid wood rocking chair with a baby on her shoulder, gurgling in the satisfaction of a post-meal sleepiness. The child's cheek rested on a terrycloth tea towel with red and white stripes. Brittany had a homemade quilt across her lap that had tea kettle designs in the squares and a flowered border. It looked warm and homey. Bill the dog sat on a throw rug off to one side, watching mother and child with fascination. Is that dog safe? Brittany asked with a protective edge to her voice. He's all right. The old man responded, I can make him stay outside if you want. No, it's okay. He's kind of, I don't know, comforting. He's a very good dog, the old man said matter-of-factly. Bill's tail thumped the wood floor. How's our little fighter doing today? The old man asked. Good. Nothing like a full belly to make a baby happy. Just keep an eye on what you're eating. Some foods will pass through to the baby. But I think you'll figure that out. As they were talking, Petey came in from the kitchen with a bowl of noodles and flopped down on the couch, spilling a bit on his legs. He rubbed it with his free hand and licked his fingers. Brittany rolled her eyes at him. Don't mess up my house, lover. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, Mom. He grinned back at her. Listen, the old man began. Can I talk to you two about something? What? Petey asked suspiciously. I think it would be best if you came back with us. It's not safe here. At the university, we have resources and people. There is safety in numbers. It would be better for the baby. He gestured toward Brittany and the rocker. I don't think so, Petey said. We've made it this far, and we know how to take care of ourselves. Every time we join a group, something bad happens. I think we're safer on our own. Maybe before the baby, the old man leaned in. But it's different now. You need help raising a baby. We've got doctors and medicine, and there are women in our group who know how to care for a child. Heck, we even have children in our group. Petey dug in. We know the gangs are out patrolling, looking to expand their territories. It's not safe to travel. You know that. How are we going to get back to your people? 
We've made it down here. We'll make it back, the old man said. The old man and Petey were on the verge of an argument when Brittany spoke up. We'll come with you. What? Petey looked at her incredulously. They have food, Petey. It's not just us now. We have to think of civil. What kind of life is she going to have living in the woods like a possum? Brittany continued, softly patting the baby's back. I did a lot of thinking while you were gone. When the winter comes, conditions here at the lake are going to be pretty hard. I think the old man is right. We need to be willing to think different for the baby. We gotta go, she concluded. Petey's mouth hung open as he thought about what he should say. But he snapped it shut and nodded. Brittany had spoken. The old man was outside in the sun with his field glasses, observing the shoreline near the camp for any signs of movement or activity. He did not see anything. Yet. He lifted his head to see Zane and Willie emerging from the trees. They were holding hands and giggling like kids at summer camp, away from their parents for the first time. Zane was clad only in boxer shorts, and his long hair was wet and plastered to his head, his wiry body, wet and fishy white in the sunlight, seemed out of place. He was carrying his boots and clothes in his free hand. Willie was likewise stripped down to her shorts and bra, dripping with water from the lake and smiling. She held her own bundle of clothes. To the old man, they seemed startlingly young and vibrant. The juxtaposition took the old man by surprise. Here he was, lost in his thoughts of plague and apocalypse, and these two young adults emerged from the wood like Oberon and Titania, holding hands and laughing. But he soon recovered from his surprise. They were young, and he took comfort in the universality and constancy of human nature on display in the two youngsters. It made him happy. It gave him hope. Youth had the power to overcome even the darkness of the apocalypse. Jeez, what have you two been up to? You look like drowned rats. I was teaching Willie how to swim, Zane replied, looking at Willie and smiling. Are there any towels? Yeah, look in that linen closet inside the door. There are beach towels, the old man instructed. Get cleaned up and ready. We're heading out, back to campus. We're bringing everyone back with us. He paused and continued with a serious tone. Make sure that scatter gun is cleaned and loaded. Zane released Willie's hand and nodded, heading for the cabin door. The remainder of that day was spent preparing to leave. 
Although it was important that they travel light, they had to pack up all the supplies that Petey and Brittany had gathered. And when they traveled this time, they needed to move quickly. They needed to get back to the campus before they encountered any more hostile groups. It was early afternoon before they were ready to go. But with the long summer days, they should be able to get 10 to 12 miles in before darkness set in. Then they would get up early and push through the rest of the trip in the morning. One of the kids had suggested traveling at night for secrecy, but the old man nixed that idea. Without modern navigation tools, wandering around in the dark was sure to lead to trouble. They sent Zane and Willie in the canoe with the younger kid, Warren, over first to make sure it was safe. There was some risk of being seen if someone was watching the lake. It took three trips. Bill swam back on his own. They put the canoe back in its hiding place. The old man stood on the camp beach and looked out at the long, narrow lake, the hills cascading pine trees down from all sides, and the island highlighted in the afternoon sun. It was really a pretty place. It reminded him of a Fenimore Cooper novel. Maybe that was his fate to be the last Mohican of the apocalypse. He sighed. Paul's vision of a utopian society wouldn't matter. Mag's vision of an agrarian redoubt wouldn't matter. These kids, Zane, Willie, Petey, Brittany, and Sybil, and their pristine young love wouldn't matter unless he could find a cure. But he had a lead now. He needed to get them back so he could chase that down. He turned to look at the ragtag group of survivors waiting to leave. They were humanity's future. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my survivor friends, and welcome back to episode 15 of season four of After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. Hope everyone is doing well here as we, we climb out of winter up in my hemisphere. A couple of things to share this week. Just to let you know, I am human, if you had any doubt. I did have a bit of the old writer's block, a power outage for this episode. I think it was a combination of having back-to-back travel weeks in February and being in the deepest dark cold of winter, maybe fighting a little something as well. Maybe I had the plague. I was super unmotivated and sleeping a lot, but the muses roused me. They returned just in the nick of time, and I got it done. Thank you to my editors and my voice talent, Robert, for being so understanding and committed to this project. By the way, the nick of time, that's a very old saying. It means at the last possible moment or just in time. And the first cited use in the OED, that's what people in the know call the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED. So its first cited use in the English language is in a 1610 sermon. Most etymologists, and those are people who study words, not entomologists, which are people who study insects, Most etymologists believe that this phrase is somehow related to the habit of carving notches into something to track time intervals in medieval times. So I have committed to getting the rest of this season laid out and written, and we will soon be at the end of the fourth book. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) For, For you who are listening, this should highlight the disjointed temporal flux that is the art of podcasting. We've been producing this show for four years now, and some of you just listened through the whole thing in a week, right? Somebody listening right now is going, ah, I just spent a week listening to this. And and now you're sorely disappointed to have to wait again. So welcome to time travel. I have a couple of new pieces of content to share this week that I have consumed or been consuming. Uh, The first is another series by Scott Sigler in the Sigler-verse called The Galactic Football League. I listened through the first season of this called The Rookie, and part of the second season is also, I believe, available as a podcast, as a podcast stream. You can listen to it. It's very good. Scott's such a prolific writer and producer and audio recorder, and you can find several of his works online on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. He's got multiple podcast series available, and we recently talked about and I listened to the first two books of the Infected Trilogy, which is another one of his. So everything he does is very high quality. Take a look something to binge through while you're waiting on me to create something. And next up, I read another book, as I often do. It was called The Splinter in the Sky by Kemi Ashingiwa, and it was published in 2023. 
Now, the story is, I heard one of this author's short stories on one of the science fiction podcasts that I also listen to. And when I heard her biography, I was interested enough to learn more about her and her writing. And it occurred to me that I spend a lot of my reading time in the past and that I should read something from this century and preferably something from an emerging author and let's say from someone outside my demographic. Maybe get outside my comfort zone a little bit. This novel seemed just the thing because it's hard sci-fi. So Kemi Ashingiwa fits all of these requirements. She's a PhD student at Stanford right now with an undergrad from Harvard. So pretty smart cookie. She's a young female person of color. And her novel was very good hard sci-fi with a slight sort of Game of Thrones vibe. For Pretty good for a first novel. The plot has a character from an outside province being brought to the Empire's core first as a hostage, but then to help solve a murderous conspiracy. And I I really appreciated how she channeled her own experiences through this character to talk about things like cultural appropriation, colonialism, bigotry. The novel, as other reviewers have noted, was a bit derivative, disjointed, and less than nuanced in its messaging, and it had some slow spots. But I picked it up specifically to hear a new voice, and I think she's going to be a brilliant sci-fi author as she matures into the art. As I have said before, what I like about science fiction as a genre, and amusingly there, I almost wrote gender, not genre, as a genre is its ability to be a safe place to consider very real cultural artifices. And I had several moments in the book where I thought, hey, wait a minute, she's talking about me. So anyhow, I bought this book online from a used bookstore. And amusingly here, I received an actual pre-publication edition, an advanced reader's edition, complete with the not-for-resale warning. Uh, So anyhow, it's an easy read. I recommend it. And with that, my friends, I will take you towards the exit Please support the show in any way you can. The links are all in the show notes and on the website. It's tax season here in the U.S., and with that, I get to see just how bad of a business proposition an audio fiction podcast is. And thank you to Jane for the coffee she bought me last week. Links are in the show notes and on my website. That's 787 carefully chosen words for you. Count them well. And keep surviving. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.